As we go to the Lord in the preaching of his word, brothers and sisters, I'd like to turn with you to two passages, not just one. Turn with me first in your Bibles uh, to Psalm 22. Then we'll turn over to Matthew chapter 27. As you're turning there, so thankful that we have visitors on a Sunday evening. We celebrate the Lord's Supper at Resurrection each Sunday evening. We invite you and encourage you to take part in the Lord's Supper with us if you're baptized, professing disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, that's our invitation. Uh, we cannot invite you if you're not part yet of the family of God, but we can invite you to be part of the family of God and would love opportunity to help you uh, enter into his favor through Christ, if that is your need tonight. We're looking forward to both word and sacrament. Uh, I will be preaching from Matthew 27, but I'll be reading first from Psalm 22. You'll see uh, why these two passages together. Psalm 22, beginning at verse 1, I'll read through verse 8. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. We'll return to Psalm 22 in a moment. Turn over now with me to Matthew chapter 27. We'll look together at the fourth of our Lord's seven sayings from the cross. Matthew 27 Begin reading at verse 32. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. 
So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemech sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. One of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Jesus cried out again, a loud voice, yielded up his spirit. This is the word of God. Amen. Let's seek the Lord's blessing on his word. Yet again. Counted a jewel among many in your word. O Lord, that we know the things said by our Savior as he took our place on the cross desire to know him, to know your purposes in his death, to be all afresh and anew, made grateful and secure in your love as a result. Lead us, we pray, just to say and hear and think only what is faithful to your word. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. In this occasional series on Sunday nights when I am preaching in place of Pastor Rosser, we've been considering the seven sayings of our Savior on the cross. We've considered three of them thus far. So soon after the cross is erected and the bystanders mocking begins, Luke gives us his first saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. The thieves join in until one of them has a change of heart. And Luke also tells us Christ's second saying. says to the thief, this side, I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise. It's John who tells us what we, our best measure, know of as the third saying. Those who love Christ are standing near him and in all their strickenness of heart, Jesus turns to them and tells us that he looks at his mother and says to his mother, dear woman, here is your son, looking at John. And to John, here is your mother. We've looked at those sayings thus far. Uh, we read of none of those sayings in the Gospel of Matthew, and we don't read of any of the final three sayings of our Savior from Matthew's Gospel 
In Matthew's account, it's as if Jesus only said one thing from the cross. It's the one we take up today. We don't need to assume, of course, that Matthew was unaware of the other things our Lord said. We certainly can conclude that he saw this as particularly significant. So he features this one of the seven sayings. As a matter of fact, unlike all the other sayings, he records our Lord's words with the sounds, the actual words that Jesus would have used, rather than simply rendering it in the Greek as uh, the New Testament does. So, brothers and sisters, I'll say to you at the outset, of all the seven words, this is surely the most mysterious of them all. I think the mystery of this word grows with me the longer I think about it. And it's also, frankly, a dreadful word. We found so much comfort in those other words uh, that reflect the heart of our Savior uh, in going out to others in the midst of his sufferings. Mercy towards those who are nailing him to the cross. Grace towards a, a sinner converted beside him. Love for a disciple. Love for his mother. Those were what we saw thus far. Now we're seeing our Savior's heart not now going out towards others, but turning towards God, yet consumed with the anguish that's settling upon him. He's crying out to God in ways that reflect his agonies on the cross. We're going to look at this word of our Savior with the help of three questions. There's a how question, there's a why question, and there's a what question. Number one, we want to know how was Jesus forsaken by his Father for all the weight of our Lord's words falls. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, abandoned me, deserted me? We could also render it. We have questions about this because there's theology, there's Trinitarian theology that's at stake here. Our understanding of the relationship between the Father and the Son that's an eternal relationship. And so, for example, as we answer the question, how was Jesus forsaken by the Father, we know that there was not something taking place there in that moment when Jesus uttered these words that in some fundamental way divided Father from Son in their essence. We know this. John 10 Records for us our Lord's words, I and the Father are one, and we know this to be an eternal, inseparable oneness. We also know from John's gospel that Jesus is anticipating the support of the Spirit as he goes through this trial. In John 16, Jesus says, but a time is coming and has come when you will be scattered, speaking to his disciples, each to his own. You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. 
something being spoken of there of confidence by our Lord that uh, the trial that he will undergo is one which he will be supported by the Father in it and through it. And we can further say that whatever it means, Jesus registers awareness of God forsaking him. We know the Father did not at any point cease to love his Son. We can actually say that the very thing that our son was experiencing was only fresh reason for the father to love him. Because Jesus says again in John 10, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. So we've hedged off a certain kind of abandonment that could not have been taking place. As Jesus prays to the Father. Brothers and sisters, on the other hand, there is something real. There is something genuine about our Lord's abandonment. The Lord is certainly convinced of this. This is what gives rise to this anguished cry. He cries out and think about how difficult it would be to cry out in the condition that he was in. Near to death, his energy is sapping away. He says, my God, my God, twice over. And he puts it in this question. It's a question that's trying to express the unnaturalness of this. Why have you forsaken me? What was happening? Well, remember what Matthew has told us as he records this account He tells us of circumstances that have given rise to this moment that parallel in an uncanny way the psalm that I read earlier, Psalm 22. First look back at verse verse 43 uh, in Matthew 27. Uh, Those who are mocking the Savior on the cross, they say, He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. If he desires him, for he said, I am the son of God. That was the same kind of thing that was said by those who are uh, envisioned by David in Psalm 22. Verse 7, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Matthew was recording the facts of Jesus' crucifixion and the circumstances around it, very much mindful of Psalm 22. Why would he be mindful of Psalm 22? Well, among other reasons, it's because our Lord takes Psalm 22, verse 1, and he makes that prayer, his cry of dereliction, as it's called. David's cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He takes to himself. And he's experienced something that has a parallel with what David experienced. Uh, The logic, if you can call it that, of David's enemies, of our Lord's enemies was, look, if this man is so very righteous, well, then he can expect deliverance from God. He can expect God to vindicate him. But if he dies like a dog on this cross, that would show God had abandoned him. Whatever you think of that logic, our Lord is seeing there's some 
truth to him. God in heaven doesn't deliver him there on the cross. But he has been truly, certain way, abandoned. The psalm that we've just looked at goes on to describe David's experience in poetic terms. There are metaphors in David's experience, but they're fulfilled literally in Christ's experience. Psalm 22, I didn't read this part. Verse 14, David writes, I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. So you see why Matthew would hear in Psalm 22 pointing forward to the experience of David's son being abandoned. Jesus is not mistaken. God's abandoning of him is clear from the facts. He's been left in the clutch of his enemies. He's been left without deliverance by God. And unlike the psalmist who actually is delivered and lives to tell the story of his deliverance, Jesus is about to die. So Jesus is experiencing not an imaginary, but a real forsakenness. This is quite a first for our Lord. Think of how our Lord Jesus spent in his human nature a whole life in perfect communion with the Father. He's been sustained by the Spirit. In answer to his prayers for the same. And something is happening now that has no precedent for him. God is withdrawing himself from him. He's turning from him. He's removing a sense of his love. We can say that at least. This is mystery. Mystery indeed. Uh, You and I can have the sense that God has abandoned us. When he actually hasn't, Isaiah speaks about that, chapter 49, but Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me, the Lord has forgotten me. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See what Isaiah is assuring God's people? You may have a sense of being abandoned, but you are not in fact But our Savior had the sense that God had forsaken him. And he had. He had. So that leads us to the second question. The first was, how is Jesus forsaken? We've done the best we could with that mystery. Why? Why was he? Of course, that's what Jesus is asking. It's the very question he has, Lord, why? He doesn't say how, or rather, have you forsaken me? He says, why have you? 
Is there confusion in our Lord's question? We do not attribute to our Lord Jesus any sin, any error. In his human nature, he's not all-knowing. In his human nature, he is not all-knowing. So out of his human or his humanity, he could ask a question. His answer was out, beyond his reach. This is a recurring question of the saints, and of course, not just in Psalm 22, it's a recurring question in David's life. Why, O Lord, do you stand far off, he says in Psalm 10. Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 44, why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? Psalm 88, Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? There's a contradiction that's being felt here. One who trusts in the Lord, who is not as of yet receiving help, support. Now again, for us, there is explanation close at hand for why the Lord might allow us to feel forsaken by him for a time. We learn in other portions of God's word that he sometimes tests us that way, tests us to know where our heart really is. There are times when he withdraws because there is something offensive in us. He withdraws for a time from us to chasten us, to warn us. What about Jesus? His character needed no refining. Certainly without sin to be chastised for. Why was he, of all people, forsaken? The answer, as you know, the very center of what we all call the gospel. I'm going to make reference to this morning's sermon as I continue the next moment or two talk this morning, if you were not here, about this attribute of the justice of God, and the justice of God means, among other things, that he is holy in his resolve to punish evildoers. We put it this way, when he sees sin in the world, and when he sees sin in the life of a specific individual, he has to do something about it. He knows something must be done in order to vindicate his own glory So something must be done. Sin has to be punished. What if God wants both to do something about the sin that's in the lives of those he's chosen unto salvation, to satisfy his justice, but also provide a way of escape full wrath of God for that sin. What if he also wants to save? You know, he devised this wondrous plan. Who could have thought of it except him? For there to be a sinless substitute on the cross of Calvary who would offer himself in our place to receive the wrath of God, the forsakenness that we deserve, So that God, in Christ, could, in fact, do something about your sin. 
and also have you as his child. So Galatians 3 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. This becomes, in fact, the whole structure of the Bible. I've been going through this yet again recently in those membership class podcasts where God relates to man in terms of covenant and with us. And there are curses of the covenant for covenant breaking. And there are blessings of the covenant for covenant keeping. But the problem is we're all covenant breakers. So what spares us? from falling under all the rightful wrath of God, bearing ourselves the curses of the covenant. Well, Christ does. He's appointed to take to himself the curse on the cross. And that is what he's experiencing these three hours. Interestingly, these three hours of darkness on the cross. He is bearing our our disobedience. So, brothers and sisters, in order for you and me to be saved, our Lord must be forsaken. God pours out the wrath of all deity sins of the elect upon his son as basic as this is to our faith it's wrapped up in mystery he doesn't cease to love the eternally begotten son yet he burns with anger against the God man there on the cross not a mere displeasure the kind of thing we know for sin, but the punitive wrath of God. The only other analogy we have for what Jesus suffered on the cross is what the damned suffer in hell. That's the only analogy to it. So much mystery in this. Suffice it to say, you and I can't understand the whole point of our Lord's abandonment On the cross, you can't understand the price or the worth of your salvation apart from the reality. God poured out the curse that you and I deserve, the one who is innocent. So Christ was appointed to take to himself that curse. He was forsaken on the cross that we, despite all of our Forsaking of God might not ever be. Selves forsaken by him. All this, this cry of dereliction. Now let's ask, thirdly, what are we to do with this? How are we to respond to this? Here's three things for you to consider. Reflect on these words of our Savior and the experience Lying behind them. Brothers and sisters, may I encourage us first to treasure always the very thing that our Savior lost on the cross 
I'm speaking of the sense of the presence and the favor of God. How easily we take that for granted. How easily we hold it cheap. How easily we allow ourselves those kinds of deeds and thoughts that rob us of the very thing Jesus is deprived of for our sake. Listen to one of our Puritan fathers. He says, it's strange to consider what small things draw us off of God. This is the great degeneracy and disease of mankind that a trifle will prompt us to forsake God as a little thing will make a stone run downhill. It's a natural motion. Christ's complaint shows how God's favor is to be valued. That it's a dangerous thing to part with it. The carnal satisfactions. This is our daily privilege to seek and to secure a sense of the favor of God and the awareness of his presence and to know that this is one of our greatest gifts in the gospel. This is something we may have. So let us not take it for granted. Reflecting on what it cost our Savior for us to have it. But what about those times? I referred to them a moment ago. What about those times when God, for his holy purposes, either to test us or to chastise us, withdraws that sense of favor from us, withdraws that sense of his presence? We know that experience. What do we learn from our Savior in those settings? Well, we learn from his example to follow after the one who seems to have forsaken us. What's our Lord doing when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Don't overlook the pronouns, my God. He's clinging to his father. Who else would he cling to under his circumstances? He's doing something that Job Wonderfully testifies to, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And another Puritan points out, this was not a mutual desertion. The father forsook him, but he forsook not his father. When God withdrew, he followed him, crying, my God. My God. So if you have that sense, at least the sense of God's abandonment, you have seen that this is not something that is uncommon in the experience of God's people in his word. And God is seeking to see in you what we see in our Savior, falling hard after him, refusing to turn to anyone else. One more thing, especially as we come to the supper tonight, we can reflect on in response to our Lord's cry from the cross. That is that we can take heart. We can be confident of the utter impossibility of God ever forsaking us, of those who are redeemed, 
by Christ. Thomas Manton, Christ was forsaken that there might be no longer any separation between us and God. He was forsaken for a while that we might be received forever so that this desertion, which was so bitter to Christ, is the cause of sweet consolation to us. The measure to which you understand the agonies of Christ's abandonment on the cross is the measure to which you can and should be confident that you will never be abandoned by your God. That's your only hope. Our Savior's forsakenness is your only hope. Not being forsaken. There is a law in the universe. Christ is secured. More certain than gravity. God will never forsake his people. That law has not. Never will be suspended. He has secured it. By inflicting that experience of forsakenness, the one who died in our place. So, brothers and sisters, as we come to Lord's Supper this evening, we are assuring ourselves, we are rather, once again, being assured by God in the sacrament uh, that He will never forsake us. We are going to. Seek his presence at the sacrament. We're going to seek his favor towards us in the way that he's ordained as he feeds us with Christ. And we're going to be reminded how costly this was. Came at the price of our Lord's own agonies and true forsakenness for a time. You are, if you're in Christ, Unforsaken, unforsakable. Amen.